Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. You're listening to episode two. In this episode, we're going to talk about how our bodies physically react to trauma. Knowing how you reacted to a trauma and what is going on in our brains and nervous systems can help survivors release guilt and can help our support systems be more understanding about how the vastly different ways people react to traumatic experiences. While I'm not a neuropsychologist, I happen to have one in the studio with me today to talk about the science behind what's happening during a traumatic event. I am joined by Dr. Diana Davalos, an alum of CSU. She's a professor and researcher here in cognitive neuroscience, and she's an expert in how all of this works. Thank you so much for joining us today in the studio. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We have started this tradition of kind of asking our guests to talk about some of their saline identities so our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit and understand who's in the studio with me. So would you mind sharing some of those with us? Absolutely. I identify as a female. I identify as mixed race. My mother is Caucasian and my father's family is from Mexico and identify as a wife, mother. I think that's mainly it. Thank you. All right. So you're here to talk about a little bit about how trauma impacts our brains today. Thank you for doing this. I often will present on this out in public and I'm always like, I'm not a neuropsychologist, but if I was, I might tell you things like this. And so when I thought about doing this session, I was like, oh, I should probably get a neuropsychologist. Well, you know, one of the things that's clear when you look um, in the literature and when you just look at popular media is everybody brings a different piece to the story. So um, I think probably your experience on a day-to-day basis adds a lot that we miss unless we're seeing people with PTSD on a day-to-day basis. So um, I kind of like that different people presented. I don't think we have all the answers. Um, When I was looking through the literature for the interview today, it was really eye-opening to see what teachers, um, you know, if you look at childhood trauma, what teachers see in the classroom. And it's not necessarily this very well-defined study. It's what they see Mm -hmm. and how they can kind of start identifying some kids who have had trauma. So I like that to have sort of a more, more of a breadth of people who are trying to answer questions about PTSD. Cool. Thanks. Sure. So the first question I have is, can you tell us a little bit about how the brain acts differently between what we would call a normal everyday operation and how it changes during a traumatic event? What are some of the things that happen? Sure. I think one of the overarching themes with PTSD and what happens in the brain and then what happens after trauma is that in an ideal situation, I think we want some of the higher level areas of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, um, areas of the brain that regulate emotion or process emotion like the amygdala. We want them working hand in hand. So in normal activity, I think you're able to focus your attention on whatever the task at hand is. You're able to kind of see the bigger picture. You're able to process it with a, with a nice recipe of cognition and emotion. And so I think when there's not something traumatic going on for most people, um, you're able to have different views of it and be able to think about it rationally and then mix it with how you feel emotionally and process that. I think in a traumatic event, what ends up happening is that the survival areas of your brain kick in. And often those are not about looking at every aspect and weighing things and is this a good thing to do. And what we see in the brain is 
the effects are not necessarily what we want long term, but the things that happen that develop PTSD are often because your brain and body are trying to get you to survive. So I think all of that nice sort of hand-in-hand behavior of cognition and emotion working together goes out the window and your brain kicks in to how can I either get this person out of this situation and that can be physically or how can I get this person out of this situation and that can be psychologically and how can I just endure Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a, it's a very different place than I think we want to be on a day-to-day basis that, that how can I survive and endure? Um, so I think you get much more of what some people call kind of a mammalian response of a, you know, what would a more primitive animal do to, to not get eaten or not die? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not necessarily what you would want in terms of being able to reason your way through something. Makes sense in that moment that that's what you're doing, that fight, flight, or freeze response is basically what you were just describing, right? But how to make sense of it afterwards gets really complicated. Absolutely. And I think the fact that for a lot of people, and it, you know, it really, there's quite a bit of evidence now that there's probably not one PTSD that, you know, there's been a push to look at PTSD from more of like a complex syndrome that evolves over lots of exposure to trauma versus a one-time trauma. And it's not saying that one is better or worse, but it just, there's probably a lot of pieces that go into it. Um, But in terms of the fight or flight or freeze, the other thing for a lot of people is when it's a one-time event, they haven't had any experience with what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as we grow up and mature, we get little samplings of experiences and then maybe it morphs a little bit or gets a little bit more elaborate or demanding as we get older. But for a lot of people, you're in a very strange situation where you just have no experience with how to approach it and what you're supposed to do. And so I think that those survival mechanisms kick in and they win because you don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know how to get out of that situation. Yeah. I did a presentation this morning where I was talking about this idea of tonic immobility. Mm -hmm. And as an example, I showed, you know, on YouTube, you can find examples of people on roller coasters or experiencing carnival rides where you can watch them experience tonic immobility. Right. right? They may pass out as a as a protection method. Mm -hmm. The one I showed a day was, you know, you hear him reasoning his way through the situation. Okay, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. That's that reassurance. Mm he'll sing. (laughs) He sings in it because he's trying to distract himself from the imminent danger, right? Then it launches him and he starts screaming. He gets really angry at the person next to him. Like, what you said, it wasn't going to go upset. Like blame and anger and all that stuff is showing up, right? Then he passes out. Yeah. When he wakes up and he talks about how he doesn't have, he can't feel his arms and legs anymore. I've lost, I've lost the feeling in my legs. I can't move them, right? And so it's a really good visualization of this atonic mobility that we see then show up in victim blaming later, Mm -hmm. right? That well, why didn't you fight back? Well, I didn't have the use of my arms or my legs. I right. was paralyzed essentially in that moment or my vocal cords were paralyzed. I couldn't talk. I couldn't say no. Right. Um, and it really leads to some of that self-blame. Absolutely. I think there's two sort of ways you can look at how people respond and tonic immobility is, is thought to be very much that mammalian piece of just freeze. Like it dates back from an evolutionary perspective to if you're being hunted Maybe if you freeze, they'll pass by and you Mm -hmm. won't get attacked. And so it serves a great purpose. um, But then when you have people, and I'm not saying that attorneys or prosecutors don't have empathy, because it happens with cops too. You know, if cops are going in in a situation 
and it's high threat and they don't necessarily remember every detail. It's because they're in this aroused state. So Mm -hmm. it happens to everybody. But when you want to sort of punch holes in somebody's high level cognitive story, it's really easy to do that. But what they did was probably from an evolutionary perspective, the best thing they could do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think people get really confused about what they think they would do or how they know what their body would do. And, you know, I don't know how to get people to be more empathic or to see that perspective of they did the right thing for them and their body at that moment. Mm-hmm. Even if it was unconscious. Most of Absolutely. the time it is, right? Absolutely. So can you talk about how that you're not necessarily conscious or cognitive of some of the decisions that you're making in the moment and how that might show up for people um, when they're trying to then make sense of it later? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're still trying to piece together exactly what happens, but it seems like what generally happens is the parts of the brain that are more sensory, that are more emotion-based, that kick your parasympathetic nervous system into gear, they see a threat, and probably before people even know what's going on, those those systems kick into gear. I think ideally, if and, and in some situations this probably happens, the person may be able to have that cognitive piece kick in and say, let me really think about my options in some situations or other situations where people are not given any time. And so all that kicks in is that physical response of, I have to get out of this situation. This is a threat. Mm -hmm. And so I think what ends up happening is the, again, lower levels or subcortical or older parts of the brain just go straight into that mode of, I have to get out of this. And so if people can physically leave, if they can, you know, pursue flight, they do. Um, Sometimes we freeze because we're trying to figure out trying to get some sort of bearing on the threat and Mm -hmm. trying to assess the situation of, can I get out of this situation in a safe way? And I think that in terms of what happens with dissociation or psychologically escaping is if somebody can't get out of a situation, if it is just unescapable, I think our brain kicks in automatically and tries to say, go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, the story you were telling about the roller coaster, I'm not at all making that an analogy for like sexual trauma, but that person was trying to focus their attention somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so it's really kind of applaudable that people can even get in that mode of I'm going to sing because I'm terrified. And I think with dissociation, sometimes what happens is that people just dig deep in their brain for memories for they focus internally on something because nothing externally is something they can handle at Mm -hmm. that point. We're just not made, you know, I don't think we're made to be able to get through trauma. I think it's called trauma for a reason. We we can get through painful situations. We can get through undesirable situations. But I think trauma is by definition something we're just not made to work through Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I hear often from survivors, like it felt like I was watching from the door or from the ceiling, that they actually had this out-of-body experience Mm -hmm. where that was their way of protecting themselves. Or I hear a lot of times that they'll like, I think I was drugged and they might have very well been Mm -hmm. drugged because a lot of times on a college campus, there's alcohol involved. But what's more probable is that that's that dissociation, that that your brain caused a blackout Mm -hmm. because what your body was experiencing was too much for you to emotionally or psychologically process. Absolutely. And people are, I think, taking more interest in understanding that piece. You know, there's now a subtype that's about depersonalization that didn't used to be there. Um, where people talk about uh, viewing it as an outsider, that Mm -hmm. they view trauma, they remember 
physically leaving their body or they remember watching it, but it was more like a movie instead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are interested in that because it's, it looks like at least um, from a few studies that how you approach those experiences might be different than people who don't have that, how you get them back on track or how you get them to deal with what happened when they viewed it as another person is different than someone who says, this is what I felt and this mm-hmm. is what I experienced. And so I think people are taking it a little more seriously from a research and clinical perspective. I guess that leads into the next question, um, because we also work with adult survivors of child sexual abuse and who are really struggling with memory recall and how that affects trauma victims. So they often are having a hard time talking about what happened or things feel fuzzy. They'll talk about like, oh, I kind kind of feel like maybe this part happened or didn't. Can you talk about kind of why they can't recall it fully? The second part of that question is what happens when you have a memory like hit you in the face a decade later, two decades later? That feels so real. Right. I think those are kind of two different issues. Mm -hmm. The the first one, what researchers have said about that is, you know, that there's long been this idea of positive arousal and then there's a curve at which arousal no longer is positive. So, you know, a little bit of arousal is good to get you thinking and get you attending and putting resources where they need to be. And then the idea with trauma is that you go over the good Mm -hmm. arousal. And so when that happens, the idea is that you you have stress hormones that start flowing. You have these other signals from your brain that people speculate interfere with the prefrontal cortical processing in the brain or the part of the brain that sort of says, these are the important parts to pay attention to. So when you're driving, you know, if your prefrontal cortex is working, you're watching the right things on the road. Um, If you're doing your job and it's working, you focus on what you need for your work. The idea with trauma is that that gets usurped by the other areas. So your brain goes into a mode where you are not really having volition about what you're attending to. So you may attend to really weird things that you view as threats, or you may attend to something on the wall in the room, or if it's in combat, something in the horizon um, that really has nothing to do with the experience. And if people asked you, it would be really strange because... You may not know what the person looked mm-hmm. like. You not, may not know um, what they were wearing or their hair color because, unfortunately, you're not in that place where you're focusing on all of those things that, that you would want to. And then the idea with the memory is that for the hippocampus to kind of be doing what it's supposed to be doing, it needs that proper level of arousal. Um, if you have stress hormones flooding everything in your brain, people sort of view the the hippocampus as underperforming in those situations. So it's not systematically going through and trying to remember salient things. It's not looking at what your brain is attending to and trying to get the important pieces later. It's kind of in that same kind of mode where it's chaotic. And so sometimes people, I think, confuse uh, investigators or people that ask them later because they don't remember things that you would think people would remember. And there's some evidence when you don't have the attention and the memory working properly that even things like sequence of events get really confused. And so people will sometimes feel like they caught someone in a lie because, well, I Mm -hmm. thought this person did this. And so I think, again, it makes sense. Our brain works the way that it should work when it's not under extreme duress. Mm -hmm. But what it does, again, is gets the person through the situation. And that's not always getting all the facts right and it's not always remembering exactly what happened in the way other people want you to remember right so what about the recovered memories idea 
That one's tricky. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's there's fair empirical research that says there's probably other things that go into recovered memory. And I think recovered memory really took a blow when there were therapists who were really not doing things right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that you have to be really careful about with somebody who has experienced trauma is they're vulnerable in a way other people who haven't experienced trauma are. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, the re- with the recovered memory movement for years, people were saying, if I can just get them feeling really safe and relaxed. And then they were doing things that, you know, police stations got in trouble for too. Like, well, was it this? And mm. they don't have, our, our brain is made, and it's a wonderful thing it does part of the time to fill in gaps to when there's missing pieces to have logic or to say this is usually what happens and, and everybody's brain does it. That's why um, I always say you don't want to get in too big a fight about what happened in a relationship because you probably don't remember it exactly like it happened. You filled in things. Um, and I think what happened with the whole recovered memory movement was people don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, they often don't know what happened and that's part of it. And they're probably never going to know exactly what happened. Those memories are probably not even there because you have to have some sort of attention and and processing to get those as intact memories. And I think what people were trying to do, you know, potentially therapists was fill in holes. And what ended up happening is they created sometimes memories that weren't what Mm -hmm. happened. And that got other innocent people in trouble sometimes because it made sense from the therapist's perspective as this is probably what happened. And then it became that the reality, the truth for that person. I do believe that there are environmental or sensory triggers that bring people to a place where they haven't been in a mm-hmm. long time. I think that we will have a hard time ever knowing how memory works with PTSD. So um, while I have research colleagues that would say they don't happen. I don't think you can shut the door on recovered memories. Um, I think sometimes people have to get to a place where they can process them. Mm -hmm. And so they may feel recovered because they haven't talked about them for 10 years, but that may just be where they are, where they can start to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a really complex (laughs) issue. I'm not sure exactly how it works. Yeah. Well, we have that happen actually a lot with college students because if they experience something as children or early teens, that they may not have been able to process Mm -hmm. that trauma while they were still in that living environment or in the same town where that was. And so they come to college and this may be the first time that they're not living with their perpetrator. Right. It may be the first time that their perpetrator doesn't live next door down the street. right? Right. And so... Sometimes it does, it, it's their body saying, okay, now you can right. kind of handle some of this. And so it may not necessarily be recovered. It just may be like, okay, now you're ready to kind of process through how to make meaning out of, right. of this. And so that actually happens a lot where they'll come to college and start to really process some earlier trauma Yeah, because they're safe now. Mm-hmm. Another time we see that really showing up is when they have children that turn the age that they were when their trauma started. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a couple of people on our speakers bureau that will talk about that. Like I didn't, had never processed what that, what my experience, why I had this feeling about this person in my life. Right. Until my daughter turned four years old. Right. And then it all came back. 
because I saw that four-year-old doing things that normal four-year-olds do mm-hmm. and realized I don't, I wasn't doing any of those things because I was reacting to trauma in my life in different ways. And so we see those two times really showing up a lot with um, processing the trauma that they've been through. Absolutely. And, you know, I think people underestimate trauma that happens developmentally and especially family trauma. You don't know what's weird as a child. Mm -hmm. For the most part, we just are born into these families. We do what everybody else in the family does. Um, You know, sometimes it comes out where you may discuss something or you may be close with a friend and then there's some realization this is weird or this is different. But, um, you know, I think people who haven't experienced childhood trauma or worked with people with childhood trauma don't understand that often in those families, it is a huge, elaborate production to make sure the child doesn't know what's going on or to confuse the mm-hmm. child. Or, I mean, so the fact that these things happen and it's and it's probably very embarrassing when students get to college and then say this happened and people are going, what? That's this or that's that. I just think people don't understand how we're not born with this. This is exactly what every family does. And and I don't think people who haven't had experience with those families, those families sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's not like this, but the perpetrator often put so much work into making this seem normal. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I had that happen to me as a therapist where people would come in and I talk about it in class, how... It looked like a recovered memory, but a young woman came in and finally asked something that her father had done. Was that normal? And that was the first time she had felt safe and said, Mm -hmm. is that normal? And it wasn't normal. (laughs) So, but why would she know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's just so many layers that I, I, you know, I think people have a hard time processing in the outside world about how this goes on for so long or how people, why didn't they do something? There's a lot of victim blaming in PTSD that just shows people's lack of empathy or ignorance about how it works. Mm-hmm. Or often the blaming around, aren't you over this yet? Right. This idea that healing happens on some sort of timeline. Absolutely. Or to, to judge people for how they respond. I mean, I'm not minimizing that some people who experience trauma, um, you know, they can develop disorders that are very hard on relationships as adults mm-hmm. but if you look historically a lot of that stuff worked you know it kept them alive mm-hmm. so checking out when you're when there's any sort of escalation in your voice or interaction I mean as an adult who's not doesn't have experience that's not fun for the person in the relationship either mm-hmm. but it worked for so long to keep them alive yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just think it's very complex and it's, it's a, it's a long process. Um, and there's some evidence that for some people, depending on severity and chronicity, that their brains are different till the day they die, but it's, it's doing things to help them, um, sort of reprogram or reassess how they react or, you know, just cognitive training to sort of say, when this happens, maybe this would be another response, but it's a weird, uh, diagnosis in the sense that there's a lot of victim blaming for to someone who often has experienced unimaginable trauma right right well thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it now that we have the language to understand what is happening 
I want to take a minute to talk about why this is important for survivors to understand. So many times I'm working with someone one-on-one and I hear statements like, I should have fought back. Why didn't I run? I just laid there. I didn't do anything to stop it. These are all ideas that we as a culture have gotten really good at cultivating, and they aren't serving us at all. They are built on this false sense that people can control what they do during a trauma. This is one of the reasons I have such a strong reaction to self-defense classes or arming oneself. In the prevention world, we call those measures risk reduction. And don't get me wrong, these measures can be effective, but when they aren't, it leads to further victimization and self-blame. So let's spend a minute unpacking some of that. Let's say I'm interested in taking a self-defense course because I'm scared to walk to my car alone at night. That is a reasonable response to fear, to prepare for what might be. So I take the class. I'm feeling empowered and that I have the skills to fight off a possible attack. This is good. Being empowered can help someone with confidence issues. It can lead to a person standing up for themselves when they might otherwise not. But self-defense doesn't always work. So let's carry this scenario out another step. Say that someone does try to attack me on my way to my car. From what we've learned, my fight response might trigger. I might be able to fight off the attack, but it's also possible that I might fight and lose. Oftentimes, this leads victims to have greater physical injuries. Let's say that I am able to find my mace in the heat of the attack. I spray it, and the wind blows the mace into my face instead of my perpetrator. Now, I've weakened my own defenses. But what happens if my fight response is not what is triggered by the event? What happens if I freeze? From what we've just learned, that is a possibility. We cannot control the ways in which we react to trauma. If I freeze, will I blame myself for not fighting? Will I assume some responsibility for the attack? Oftentimes, that's the way these scenarios play out. Because oftentimes, it's not a stranger in the bushes. On a college campus, 97% of perpetrators of these attacks are our friends, our dates, and we have been socially conditioned to play nice, to not stand up for ourselves. So it's unlikely that I'll mace my date. It's unlikely I will physically fight off my friend. This is a whole complicating factor. When we are with people we trust, we are not thinking about prepping for an attack like I would if I were walking to my car. But we're thinking, I wonder where we're going to eat. So often that first reaction is total confusion, which will trigger the freeze response. Like, wait, what? What are you doing? Sometimes empowerment-based self-defense can help. It can help us verbalize and set boundaries and stand up for ourselves which is why the WJC does employ some risk reduction education. And maybe our prevention philosophy would be a great podcast to explore, but for now, I can leave it here. That some risk reduction approaches do not take into account how we are biologically created to handle in-the-moment threats. Switching gears a bit, because so far we've only been talking about what happens during a trauma, I want to shift towards some of the ways that knowing I want to shift towards some of the ways knowing about neurobiological trauma can actually be helpful after a trauma, during the healing process. In the office, we often talk about triggers, flashbacks, memory fragments, and hypervigilance, and how those are a representation of residual trauma. So once again, it's definition time. A flashback is exactly what it sounds like. The feeling that you are reliving the trauma all over again. Like you're back in the moment. You might be on your way to work or class and feel like you hit a brick wall and you're back in it. Flashbacks can derail entire days because the feeling is so strong. A trigger is something that reminds us about the trauma. As we learned a few minutes ago, the trauma memory isn't stored in our logic center. It's stored in the part of our brain that houses the senses. So often, triggers come in the form of one sense or another. I have worked with survivors who can't smell coffee without feeling overwhelmed with anxiety. It's because the perpetrator smelled like coffee. 
or they can't hear a specific song because it reminds them of an abusive ex. Memory fragments are difficult because you may not have a complete memory of the trauma. This can make reporting what happened to you difficult. Good law enforcement officers will have an understanding that you may not be able to tell your story start to finish in a linear progression. That's because your prefrontal cortex was shut down during your trauma. That part of your brain that helps us do timelines and progression, it wasn't working. Trained detectives will ask questions like, what do you remember smelling, hearing, seeing? Because they know that is the part of your brain that was active when you're remembering assaults. But memory fragments are difficult for reasons in addition to reporting. Sometimes we will hear that people think they were drugged during their assault, and that might be true. It may also be true that your brain was protecting you, and so has isolated that memory from you being able to retrieve it. This is similar to the dissociation that we talked about before. But it can be incredibly vulnerable not to remember what happened to your body. I often hear from survivors that they feel like it's right on the tip of their tongue. They just can't get to it. It is hard to make sense of something that you can't fully remember. The last definition that I wanted to talk about was hypervigilance. This is an overexcited state in which sensory information cannot be controlled by in an environment. The constant influx of sensory activity is exhausting, and often the person experiencing this state isn't able to take in the information that they are hoping for. Imagine sitting in class, trying to listen to a lecture. Instead, you notice the guy behind you that hasn't showered today. The student sitting next to you, you can hear chewing gum. You notice the way the seat has a spring that's poking you. You notice the sound of the classroom heater. But wait, what did the professor just say? This makes it pretty easy to understand why someone's grades would drop or work performance would stall when experiencing hypervigilance. So I know I just threw a bunch of definitions at you, but I wanted to highlight that this is a common experience for survivors. It might help you have a word to describe what you're feeling, to know that you're not alone. You may experience one, all, or none of these symptoms. Trauma affects each person differently, and there's nothing wrong with you or how you're coping after a violent attack. You are worthy of trust and understanding. It can also help to know that survivors report feeling healed at different points on a timeline. For some, they feel better after a few weeks. Others can take months or years. And sometimes the feelings are cyclical. You might feel really good for a while and it could come back again. One thing that we do know is that seeking and having a good support system plays a big role in healing. There will be days when you don't think about yourself, maybe even months. But when you do, talking to a friend or a family member or an advocate might be really helpful. Talking about what is happening to our bodies during and after a trauma can be healing for survivors who are blaming their reaction to a situation as the cause for the situation. It isn't. The only person responsible for creating trauma is the person perpetrating violence. We need to do a better job of holding our perpetrators accountable. And that is where our support systems come into play. We need to do a better job of believing survivors. We live in a culture that puts the onus on the person being oppressed to stop their oppression. In regard to interpersonal violence, we talk about this in terms of living in a rape-supportive culture. And what I mean by that is a rape-supportive culture is a term or concept used to describe a culture in which sexual assault, rape, violence is common and which prevalent attitudes, norms, practices, and media normalize excuse, tolerate, or even condone sexual assault and rape. Examples of, examples of behaviors commonly associated with rape-supportive culture include victim-blaming, sexual objectification, rape apologism, and trivializing violence against women and girls. Although this term contains the word rape, it is a concept meant to express all forms of violent behavior stalking, sexual harassment, sexual assault, molestation, street harassment, voyeurism. So how does that show up in our support systems? I've been in the room when a mom's first question to her daughter after disclosing assault was, where was your mace? 
I've heard a friend say, why don't you just leave to someone in an abusive relationship? I've heard a partner say, aren't you over this yet? And I know when I say these things here in the context of the podcast that we, the listeners, might be thinking, how could anyone be so cruel? But in reality, these are incredibly human reactions. We're using logic in a situation where logic wasn't available, where we're applying logic to a situation that we don't know enough about. For instance, the most dangerous time for someone in an abusive relationship is when they leave. For instance, the most dangerous time for someone in an abusive relationship is when they leave. So staying might be an act of self-preservation. But as an outsider, we just think you would be so much better off if you weren't in this relationship. So we could be better supports by listening openly and without judgment. Let the person you're supporting take the lead in what they want to do. We can be there to listen as many times as they need to talk. Support shouldn't be conditional. In another podcast, we'll explore how to take care of yourself while supporting others. You don't have to be alone in this. And sometimes we need some help. But we can also be better supports by letting go of some of our misconceptions. As an example, did you know that women are often the ones that hold back guilty verdicts in the court system? As an example, did you know that women are often the worst jurors for rape trials? We have some deep internalized stuff that come up with victim blaming. We look at the victim and think, what did they do that I don't do in order to believe that this won't happen to me? Whereas jurors who are men look at victims and see loved ones. They see children, mothers, brothers, friends, and have the urge to protect. I'm not saying this isn't problematic in and of itself. I am saying that we need to do better. We need to believe survivors when they tell us what happened. And if you need some stats to help you out with that, the FBI put out a false reporting rate of sexual assault at about 2%. This means 98 out of 100 people reporting their assaults are telling the truth. And when we dig into that 2% a little bit more, most of that group is naming a stranger as the perpetrator, and they're doing it as a way to seek out support and resources. Remember, there are a lot of reasons people are afraid to talk to law enforcement. One of those reasons is that they're afraid to name their perp. So if they are naming a stranger, it's very likely they know who their perp is, but they're not able to make a full report. That doesn't mean they're making it up. But let's say that you are one of the awesome people who already believes your person. Knowing the neurobiology of trauma is still helpful for you in understanding why someone's reacting the way they are. Hopefully, it can help you be patient with intimacy after trauma. It can help you understand why you can't go to certain restaurants with your friend. It can help you take the long way around on a walk. But mostly, I think it helps slow us down. And it helps us listen to our loved ones and let them take the lead. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you had feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for a podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Havily for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.